Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. In peace, there's nothing so becomes a man as modest stillness and humility. But when the blast of war blows in our ears, then imitate the action of the tiger. your house here. Welcome to Heavenly Shows and Unnecessary Letters, a podcast where we watch and then talk about a production of every single play written by William Joshua Shakespeare, who needs no introduction. But we do, so I'm Tammy Sarah Lindy. And I'm Luke O'Hagan. This week on Heavenly Shows and Unnecessary Letters, The Merry Wives of Windsor, directed by Christopher Luscombe for the Globe Theatre in 2010 and written circa 1597 by William Shakespeare. No one can be great all the time. Spielberg made the movie of The Twilight Zone, Sondheim wrote The Frogs, and Shakespeare wrote The Merry Wives of Windsor. The following are a few things written about this play, that it is one of Shakespeare's weakest plays, and that it bears all the earmarks of hasty writing. All that being said, something we've often said in our acting careers is that when the material is weak, it gives you the opportunity to really use everything in your arsenal to create great work for the audience. After all, they can't all be Shakespeare, where no matter what you do, you'll never be better than the text. So what we have here is an opportunity. Shakespeare that isn't Shakespeare. So the question is, did these singers outsing their song? And now, for the sake of brevity, a synopsis of the Merry Wives of Windsor in one tweet. I need some money. I'm broke. I know. I'll cuck old two nobles with notably cunning wives. What's the worst that can happen? So, Luke, did you like this play? I did. I did. I, I, I wasn't expecting to. It was... Uh... I was expecting it to be uh, sort of a something to almost snooze through, much like uh, As You Like It. But at the end of the day, for a number of reasons, I liked uh, I liked how they went hard panto on it. I liked how it was a real solid hard comedy without anything else, just steered right into the comedy, and it was funny. And I respect that. I respect a funny comedy. What about yourself? I really loved this. Yeah. Um, I just, it was such a good play to sit back and relax to. Um, I mean, the first time I watched it, I literally took no notes for this podcast because I was just enjoying myself. Yeah. It, it was just a good, relaxing watch. I mean, we forget so often that Shakespeare in its day was mass entertainment, right? And I think the mission of the globe as an entity, as an as a theatre, is to really create Shakespeare in that way, right? Mm. And in that way, they really accomplished it here, I think. 
Yeah, I think there were so many things that really stood out to me and I just, I loved so much about this. Well, go. Stop. <laughs> what did you love? Um, well, I mean, all hail the Merry Wives of Windsor. Yes. Oh, the the two women playing um, Mrs. Ford and Mrs. Page are just phenomenal mm. in this. I mean, the play is titled The Merry Wives of Windsor, so one would expect those two characters to be powerhouses and they really are in this play. Um, I know for me, their entire journey from discovering the letters that they receive and how they react to that. And then the plotting and the exacting of the revenge is just beautiful. There's kind of a, a distinct to in my mode, like it's a tri-modal acting thing. Like they've got three modes. They've got this this wifely mode when they're talking to their husbands who are mm -hmm. idiots and they're just kind of being, you know, in that world. And then they're, they're conspiring together and they're so fantastic when they're in that sort of conspiratorial mode. And then we see the third mode, which is that full-on panto, oh no, whatever shall we do? Just done exquisitely well not it, 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 something like that can get annoying and it doesn't yeah it really doesn't it is exactly that exquisite is the word for that because it is just so well executed and it is just so entertaining to watch um and to see how it all plays out is just beautiful um you you mentioned about the husbands being idiots or fools it's interesting in this play because there are definite um tears of fools in this play I think yes um and one of my other favorite characters in this for minor favorites like not top of the list but the fool of this play is most definitely Master Slender yes um who is uh painted as a courtier to um Mrs. Page's daughter Anne and it's kind of this B B storyline that's there to sort of help give some Oh, it's not substance. Look, we'll talk about it at the end, but it, it's about it being a Shakespearean comedy. But um, this this gentleman called Master Slender is painted... Well, he is not painted. He is a literal fool. Um, and it's wonderful because the second he appears, he's one of the first characters we see. And his costume is actually very much shaded in the colours and the style of what we think of as court jesters. Yeah, it's... Well, my, the the only note I have written down in my notes about Slender is, you know, everything about that character in five seconds. Yeah. He walks on the stage and you know literally the entire arc, everything. And that is, that's a testament to the costume design. That's a testament yep. to the man's acting. It's yes. a testament to the writing of the character. Yeah. Um, he's got wonderful feminine energy in sort of the tradition of um, the prince from... Uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, yep. or uh, Hugh Laurie in season three of Blackadder. Yeah, uh, just that. Both of those are definitely in this tradition, and he's funny and he's wonderful. He's wonderful to watch. I mean, he has so many good little side quotes and things like that. But yeah, he's just got these wonderful nuggets of gold throughout the show as the fool. So when we go through the the foolery. 
you've got him, then you've got another minor character called the Master of the Garter Inn, um, who's basically just an innkeeper. Yes. Um, and he's hosting all of these people while they're in town. But he has some wonderful foolery moments through poetry. And then you have the husbands. But the husbands are painted very differently, I felt. I mean, sometimes they are and sometimes they put on a wig. Well, yes, but but here's the thing, though, is that you've got so the the two wives obviously they have their husbands. So Ford and Paige are the husbands, and Paige is very much a sensible man, but he's a father, and so you see, uh, you know, the themes of this play are jealousy, and so you see that jealousy come through from Paige's side of things as a jealous father trying to pick the best suitor for his daughter. Yes. Um, And he's not a fan of the guy that her daughter actually likes. But with Ford, and this is a beautiful moment, and one of the things I really loved about the structure of this play is that he is the jealous husband. But it's interesting because we don't know anything about Ford. We haven't met Ford until uh, directly after his wife says to Mrs. Page, oh, you know, I hope my husband doesn't find out about these letters from John Falstaff because he's a jealous man. And then we immediately see Falstaff's rogue going to Ford and saying, hey, uh, Falstaff's going to try and stoop your wife. Yes. And you see the instant reaction and you see this jealousy just rise up in this man to make him an imbecile. And it's marvellous. Mm. And then following that, we get these, these scenes where he goes to not confront John Falstaff, but uh, to try and trick John Falstaff. Mm. And he uh, wears a wig. and It's a great wig. And becomes, it, oh, it, it's, it's an excellent wig. And he becomes this uh, fool of a character. And he's trying to convince John Falstaff to do these things so that he can catch John in the act with his, with his wife. And he's making these asides to the audience yes, in that very pantomime fashion. And it's just, it's so wonderful because his asides to the audience are obviously completely without pretense because he's not, he's not lying to the audience. Right. So there's this sort of smooth him trying to convince and then he's turning to the audience and oh my God. And it's, yeah, it's, it's really, really well done pantomime. Yeah, and it's interesting that you mention the asides because it's very much Ford is using the audience as his confidant because we see very early on, as soon as the husbands find out from the rogues about, you know, Falstaff's plan to cuckold them, Mm. Mr. Page is very much like, "Uh, my wife isn't like that. I welcome John to try because her sharp wit will cut him to pieces. Um, Whereas Ford, suddenly realising that Paige doesn't share in his jealousy, suddenly feels alone. And so he turns to the audience as his confidant and his friend to share his concerns and to scheme with and to celebrate with. So there's a moment where um, he finds out that uh, Falstaff was dumped into the Thames because of what the wives did to him. And so he goes behind a post to be hidden from Falstaff, but shares with the audience this wonderful little, yes, like, you know, the meme, the baby yeah, yes. with success. It's that that kind of feel. And um, it's just marvellous. Like, it's just this wonderful moment. And, and that's the asides he shares with the audience. But there's also other characters that have asides with the audience that serve a different purpose. 
so another character that has a sides with the audience is Mistress Quickly. Now, Mistress Quickly is one of those, she's very much, I want to say like Mrs. Bouquet. She's that <laughs> character archetype, right? And um, she's she's the mistress, uh, so like servant, housemaid to the French doctor who is one of Anne's other suitors in that well, I, I feel at this point line. we should probably point out that, so we've talked mostly thus far in this discussion about sort of the core storyline, which is this idea of John Falstaff wanting to um, cuckold these two men for money. Yes. And there are a few B storylines in this play as well. And one of them involves this French doctor and a Welsh priest. Basically, Anne Page, who is the daughter of aforementioned Mr. and Mrs. Page, is young, single and unmarried. And so her father is trying to match her up with Master Slender, whose friend is the Welsh priest, and the Welsh priest sends a note to the French doctor's housemaid to try and guard a favour with Anne on Slender's behalf. However, the French doctor is also in love with Anne Page and is the preference of Anne's mother, Mrs Page, and he finds out about the note that the priest has sent and then assumes that the priest is in love with Anne and so challenges him to a duel. And if that sounds complicated, it's it because is. it is, yes. <laughs> and it's definitely the weaker part of the parts of this play. Absolutely. But sorry, to, to continue on with what you were saying about Mistress Quickly. Yes, so Mistress Quickly has these asides with the audience to sort of, because... As we just said, the storyline is a little confusing to keep the audience on track and understanding where they're up to and what's happening with the Anne storyline because we really don't see the character of Anne Page very much in this show. She's talked about a great deal, but we never see her. No. And so Mistress Quickly is this kind of go-between. And so she's the one who's always talking to the audience going, oh, this guy, he's such and such and blah, 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 blah. And this guy over here, he's really that this and that, the other thing. And so she kind of keeps that B storyline going without having to have all the characters in all the time, which I think saves the monotonous of that particular storyline. She's also very uh, classically different. I think there's definitely a class thing going on, a striation of class in the characters of this piece. Yeah. And she gives us a way of linking the lower class to the upper class in this piece. Yes. Without, you, you know, we we like Mrs. Quickly. And yes. we, you know, she's funny and we we root for her success. And so... It's kind of, in a way, a, a lot of the times when, when you have class distinctions in these Shakespeare plays, there's very much like the upper classes are better than the lower classes. And this is not really something mm. that is hugely apparent in this play specifically. Yeah. There are, in both classes, there are idiots and there are good people, right? Yes. So speaking of idiots and good people, <laughs> Sir John Falstaff. Oh. <gasps> So, so John Falstaff um, is a character we will we will talk about again because he is in Henry the Fourth and is uh, well regarded as one of Shakespeare's great characters. Yes, uh, one of the characters that people talk about as being a great creation of Shakespeare, and that's that John Falstaff in Henry the Fourth. That's not this one. This one is 
an old drunk idiot. Yeah. He's right. a knight. He isn't. Yeah, he is a knight because he's a sir, but he's yeah. that doesn't stop him from being. Uh, he's retired. A, he's retired. He's broke. Yeah. He decides he's going to cuckold these people and then blackmail their husbands. Yeah. You know, it's it's not exactly the picture of chivalry. Yeah. But I think in terms of an acting job, uh, the man who plays John Falstaff in this really kind of brought that ruddy, drunken inebriate to life Mm -hmm. you know i think it was really good he's not a character you root for he's a character he's he's you know he's a classic heel he's the guy you want to see get punished (laughs) and he does he really does (laughs) (laughs) he gets gets punished incredibly hard by these two and these two fantastic women and he's got this sort of rogues gallery underneath him who end up betraying him Mm. uh because of course they do you can't trust evil people to do things anyone who plays dungeons and dragons knows that but the um the two servants i think also really really good um one of them the man who plays uh Badoff, uh excellent sort of eric idol energy yes you know a bit of like you know what i mean know what i mean how's your father that that sort of thing yeah and yeah i think between the three of them there's this excellent uh contrast drawn to sort of the other uh, the other aristocracy in the play who is, they might be fools, mm. but they're lovable fools. Yes. And there's a real definite you know, sort of babyface heel dynamic in this, which is really different for Shakespeare. Usually there's not a lot of shades of grey in these characters. Yeah, yeah. They're very definitive in their stereo archetypes. Before we move on, those two uh, rogues you just mentioned, the actors who played those rogues actually doubled as Mistress Page's servants later on in ah, the play. Yes. Um, and both as the rogues and as the servants, these guys are just phenomenal. Like, they're not in lead roles. They're, you know, what would traditionally be considered bit parts. But I tell you what, they slam it, home run their performances. Um, They have this beautiful sequence um, around this basket that John Falstaff gets put in and they're supposed to carry out. And honestly, it's one of the most beautiful sequences of physical comedy I've seen in a long time. Um, And there's a payoff to it as well because they come back a second time to carry this basket. So the first time John Falstaff's in it and they make out as though it weighs the earth and it's beautifully funny. And then the second time they're asked to carry this basket again and they actually have an interchange between them of saying, I hope it's not full of night again. (laughs) And they lift it and they both have this moment of realisation of, Oh, it's and it's because it's light, you see, and so they're like, yes. <laughs> well, I'm on record as being very in favour of bit parts, like, uh, and and when a good actor sort of pours their soul into a bit part, and you can see them into a bit part or like an ensemble role, even one that doesn't have lines, I love, I love, just it's just something I love to see. I love to see uh, the effort and the intention that goes into that. And I, I agree with you. I think these guys did really, really well. So in terms of plot and in terms of story, what did you like? There's so much about this that I loved. I really loved that main storyline between the wives, like the, the interaction around the wives, interacting with Falstaff. There was something that I really gravitated to in seeing these two mature age women who were very secure, very happy in their marriages, had no intention of 
uh, cheating or anything like that, but having a bit of fun at the expense of this silly old man who was trying to, you know, woo them. There was just something about that that really just tickled my fancy. It's a great role for two women sort of in their in their 50s, sort of middle-aged. It's so often those roles are sort of limp and these are not. This is an example really of a not. comedy role yeah. that's got like some meat to it and some real fun to be had with it. Yes. It's not, you know, Hamlet. No. But it's pretty, it's got to be fun as hell to do. Hell yeah. I mean, it's a comedy role, but it's a good meaty comedy role. Like it's not just slapstick humour. Hmm. It is well thought out. It's got pathos. It's got... Um, intention, like it's, yeah, it, it's something that I would love to do. Like I would love to do Mistress Ford one day. It's got work to be done. And that's, <laughs> that's really something. That's what every actor yearns for. Absolutely. I also quite liked, not the entirety of the subplots, but the interactions between Anne Ford and her, the suitor she likes, who was Fenton. Yes. Of um, dog running through the park fame. You're going to have to link that meme in the show notes. I will. There's an excellent... I think everyone knows who Fenton the dog is, but I will link that in the show notes. There's a couple of interactions between them, which I think in much the way that, you know, a squeeze of lemon breaks up a fatty dish, <laughs> it, it, it is like a, just a moment of humanity and a moment of heartfelt writing in the middle of all this hardcore comedy that I think really breaks it up nicely. And I, I think not all of the subplots really stick out as hugely necessary, but I like the structural purpose of moments like those. Yeah. Where when you've got, you know, the this silly man getting thrown into a basket by these two conniving women and thrown into the Thames and it's hilarious and we're all laughing <laughs> and this guy's got a wig on and he's talking to the audience and he's you know, and then there's this moment of like this, this young man and this young woman who really want to be with each other. I, yeah. I just, I just think it really works. Yeah. You know what? Until I heard you sort of describe it like that, I personally thought it was a snore fest. But now that you've described it like that, I'm like, oh, well, maybe I didn't give them enough credit. But I also think, and this is really neither here nor there, we've seen a lot of useless Shakespearean romantic leading men. It's, it's kind of a reality of mm -hmm. I, I suppose we haven't gotten to the good ones yet yeah because i know that they exist but we've seen a lot of useless ones and fenton's quite good like fenton yeah. he's actually trying to do stuff you know what it is that made me not buy into that relationship is when we first meet fenton it looks like he's paying off mistress quickly to get to Anne. And that's what put me off because you've got, you've, of the three suitors that are vying for Anne's affection, you've got Slender, who is an idiot. Mm -hmm. You've got the French doctor, who is French. <laughs> and that's very much something they do in this play. And the third one is this guy who looks like he's trying to buy his way in. And I think that's what was like, Ugh, none of them are good options, so I don't care about any of them. I think that's what it was. Yes. It's not made clear until no. later on. Yeah. When they sing a lovely song together. Oh, the songs. Before we go, you know, ripping on music and Shakespeare, because, right. you know, let's be honest, some of it is pretty bad. Yes. But this show. This show. This show is, the composer for this 
show has done a wonderful job of blending the necessary songs for transitions that are Shakespearean or of the time, um, like using other poetry available from the era, and writing it in a madrigal-type style, which again is of the period, but blending that into background music that enhances the scenes and enhances the atmosphere of where people are and what's happening in a scene. Yes, uh, I mean, in terms of instrumentation, he's gone for, I think it's two horns or a, a trumpet and a trombone, I think, a flute and a lute, various lutes, including one excellent looking, real, one of the really long ones. And to just keep it in that sort of Renaissance 17th century English style. And that is, especially when combined with the setting you're in, in terms of it is the Globe Theatre, mm. it works incredibly well. So to talk specifically about a couple of the songs for for, for a second, um, one of them is written into the into the piece, and he's written a uh, a, a an arrangement for that for those lyrics that are in in the, in the Shakespeare song. Yep. The rest of them are one of them is taken from Henry the Fourth. Actually, it's a song that John Falstaff sings in that. Yep. There's also Green Sleeves. Green Sleeves very very interesting because the song of Green Sleeves is not in the text, but it is referenced in the text twice. Twice they talk about green sleeves as it's an aside to say, you know, I think it's um, belittling someone by saying, oh, yeah, he said his poem to the tune of green sleeves. Yeah. And it's, it's yeah, I, there's been a, clearly a real um, meshing between the music department and the directorial department on this yeah. one. And it's really worked. So the Globe. They've really thought about the fact that they've set this in the recreation of the globe. So, you know, this idea that they're resetting it in hopefully what was the space that this play was originally performed in. And it's such a unique, like we've been there and we've seen it. It's such an interesting place to be in physically. And it's interesting because the, the experience you have watching it through film, the way that we have of this recorded production and actually being there, we haven't seen a performance there, but to, just to be in the venue and to imagine what it must be like to see a, a, a theatre piece there, the atmosphere is very unique. It's yes. very unique in its setting. It's very unique in its open air but enclosed space type of feeling. Yeah, it's just a really interesting venue to be in. And the way that they've set up a lot of the mechanics and the stage structure for this I found really interesting. Well, yes, there's the the obvious thing to talk about in terms of the mechs is, so we have the stage and then we have sort of a, a thrust um, projection of the stage. That yeah, sort it's of kind of like around. a U pathway a around. A U pathway with a mosh pit. It's a bit weird. Um, but the uh, there so in the U path, there is a flipping section of stage that flips over and it shows a different part of the stage. And the first time we see it, they change from being in this house to being in the garden and it flips over and there's bushes on it. And definitely the kind of thing they could have done back in the 1600s. Yeah, it's, I think so. The, the, the globe was known for having a lot of mechanics built into it, especially a lot of things um, descending from the ceiling. Deus ex machina. God in the machine. They also used to have hell mouths. Yes. Well, this, this is basically what this is talking about. It is kind of a hell mouth, but instead of a hell mouth, there's a lovely garden. 
I think the most important thing the Globe provides you with is the permission to treat Shakespeare in the way it was treated in the 17th century, which was as mass entertainment. Yeah. And you, most of your crowd is standing. Most of them are raucous. Back in the 17th century, they would be going in and out. Yeah. You know, there'd be food vendors walking around. You know, it's kind of like a, kind of like a sporting event. Yeah. And giving them the permission to do that, like it's something that a lot of people, when they're putting on Shakespeare in a standard venue they kind of feel the need to be reverent to the material. Yeah. And I feel like the Globe respects the material, but they're not reverent to the material. And I feel like that's part of why this specific thing works. Yeah. And that sort of leads me into talking about the thing we started this podcast with, which is talking about the fact that this play is considered bad. People think it is a weak Shakespeare play. And I honestly think that the reason why people think this is a weak Shakespeare play is that the people making those judgments are Shakespearean academics who are not respecting the work in terms of a work that people see and are entertained by. They don't see it as a piece of entertainment. They're seeing it as a piece of literature. Yeah. And... There's this level of snobbishness about it. Because you know what? Yes, the characters in this play are not as well developed as in other Shakespeare plays. And yes, the elements of the plot don't mesh together as well as they do in some other Shakespeare plays. And yes, it is pantomiming and does lend itself to pantomime. But there's nothing wrong with that. That's no. not less theatre yeah. than Hamlet. That's not less theatre than waiting for Godot. Just because it's entertaining doesn't make it bad. And I thought that this play really worked. I yeah. thought it was entertaining. I thought it killed. People laughed. We laughed. You watched it twice. I did. <laughs> and, you know, we're going to watch a lot of Shakespeare plays and you watched it twice. Yep. You, you, you weren't saying, you know what, I don't want to do that. No, I was. I was very willing to watch it twice. And that's the level to which this play works. Mm. Yes, it's a brilliant, I think it's a brilliant comedy. And it, just because it is a bit silly and maybe a bit less well formed formally doesn't make it bad. No. And so I say to the people who write this play off as a weak play that was hastily written, you know, fie on you. <laughs> fie. Fie. As far as, like, talking about things that sort of annoyed us or annoy us in general about around this play, I obviously really, really enjoyed it. And I don't have a lot, I don't have a lot of bad negative things to say, except <laughs> hmm. there were two moments, and we're talking fleeting moments, where I went, oh, and... It's silly, but so Slender's uncle has brought him to Anne and is trying to get him to court Anne and Slender's just not understanding what's happening. And Anne says, uncle, please let, let the man court for himself. And the uncle goes, oh, fantastic. And then as he moves away, he does this thing with his tongue and it's kind of like licking his lips sticking in this like 
it's just a little creepy and it's unnecessary and I don't know if that was directorial or whether it was just something the actor did in the moment and and it was an accident or something but it was just this like and it was yeah it was it was weird and I didn't like it but I you know I got over it pretty quickly I think the reason why that sticks out is because it's so out of character with everything else he does in the play I agree it's totally out of character it's out of it's out of the entire play it just doesn't sit in the entire play it's just a weird choice and I was just like okay that was interesting and that happened again when Falstaff was doing it later on. He he does this sort of like groin thrust movement when he's talking about, uh, I think it's about the like how he's going to address the wives or something. It is. And it was just, it was excessive. Like I got the point of what he was doing, but it was just excessive and it looked uncomfortable and it looked awkward. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, I think the reason that, that kind of stuck out is because he is wearing an enormous codpiece. I mean, he does wear an enormous <laughs> codpiece. And this is probably one of the weaknesses of something like The Globe, where they're going very much for historical accuracy and things like that. But it's humongous. Like, it's just, yeah. it's hilariously large. I just, I, I think that codpieces, when you're watching a play in 2020, <laughs> um, kind of come off as uh, much more sexual than their intention was back in the day. So it kind yeah. of adds a layer of creep to the whole proceedings. Yeah, it does. <laughs> <laughs> and just, just to, to make one brief point about Slender, and I don't know, this is not really a fully formed point, but do you think that at moments Slender was a bit of a gay stereotype? And definitely I'm talking about choices by the actor in that moment to kind of make him scared of women. Well... <sighs> It's interesting you say that because they obviously, there is a moment like towards the end of the play where they play into that. Yes. But I don't feel that he is a gay stereotype in the sense that it's very, very clear throughout the whole play. Like I never, it was kind of one of those things as I watched him, I went, oh wow, he's a real idiot like he's he, yeah he he he's a fool he's he's not sharp of wit yes you know what i mean and so it never occurred to me that he was playing that because he was gay he is not sharp of wit who also happens to be gay does that make sense well it's just i i don't think that they've split that difference i think that they've found this character that has this that can't interact with women and this character that is, you, you know, that's all over the shop. Yeah. And this actor has just made this decision, probably between the actor and the director, yeah. to kind of inject this a little bit into it. Yeah. And I just think it's lazy. I just think I, I just think it's appealing to a lazy stereotype. I don't think the text requires it. No, well, I mean, like, because if the end section, when they're discovering that they've married boys... I think that's funny because I think I think originally that is a play on the fact that the girls, the girl female characters, would have been boys. Oh, right? It one hundred percent is. And so I think that's where that comes from. And I think a modern take on it, they've just taken that opportunity right at the end in that moment 
to show the suspicion that he might be gay, right? Well, I, I'm, I'm not necessarily talking about just that, though. There's also other moments where he his eye is drawn to men as they wander across the stage, and there's just there's little choices that he makes, you know? And, yeah. I, it's, and it's not a huge thing, and I'm not railing against it. I just think that it's a little bit of a lazy stereotype that isn't necessary. I mean, a play like this is full of archetypal characters anyway. You yeah. don't need to go down that route. Yeah. Is all I'm saying. It's and it's yeah. it is a point that is parenthetical at best. Yeah. I think on this one we have to agree to disagree because I don't I didn't see the character the same way you did in this circumstance. Yeah. Well, that's that's fair enough. That's fair. What quote did you like like what in terms of the writing of the piece what stuck out to you? I really loved the secret handshake. <laughs> well, that's not the writing of the piece, but it is excellent. Yeah, it is. It's a great <laughs> moment. It's a great moment. Um, so <laughs> the wives have this secret handshake that they do just before, just before, like as they s- sort of decide that they're going to do this, you know, revenge upon John Falstaff. And it's just great. It's just such, such a funny little gloriously silly moment. But I love that. I also really liked... Uh, as I said before, Master Slender has lots of great little bits throughout this play. Um, one of his early uh, things, which interestingly is one of the first things he says that at first I was like, uh, excuse me. <laughs> and then I realized he was an idiot and I went, oh, that's yeah. Okay. That makes more sense. Um, but he's speaking about Anne and he's uh, like, is, just checking, is this the person who I think it is? And he's like, Ah, so she is small and speaks like a woman. <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> um, okay. <laughs> but then later on when he's asked, can he love Anne Page in the purpose of marriage? He has this moment where he looks out as though he's been, it's very Monty Python, as yes. you said before, as if he's been struck with lightning and this thought comes upon him, which I'm sure in his mind sounds like a romantic it sounds very profound. It's, it's such a profound thing about love and marriage. And what he actually says, um, like a snippet of that comment he makes is, when we are married and have occasion to know one another, I hope familiarity will grow more contempt. <laughs> and he goes on and on in that vein. And it's quite funny, actually, because his uncle and the Welsh priest are both there looking at him just being like, what? On you are such a fool, um, and I really, I really enjoyed that. Uh, there's another sequence of dialogue that I really enjoyed, where Falstaff's rogues are being accused of thieving off of Slender. Yes, and so the rogues are being questioned. So the the actor who was playing the Eric Idol type archetype character, he speaks up and says, uh well, he had drunk himself out of his five sentences. And then the justice of the peace is like, five sentences? And then the Welsh priest says, oh, five senses. He's such an uneducated fool. And I just, I really liked the sequence of the, the rhythm and the pacing of that through that of the five sentences, five senses, five senses. It was just, it was really good. Yeah, it's a great example of the momentum in the in the speech and the asides to the audience working really well in that pantomime way. Exactly, yeah. Two more I've got. The pistol, which is one of the rogues, says, why then the world's mine oyster? And we both looked at each other and went, 
is that where it comes from? Yeah, and it is. It is. That's where it's from. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, proof that Shakespeare's inventing things. Um, and also when Falstaff rolls his eyes at quickly and says, be brief, my good she Mercury, got such a pop of laugh from the audience. It was one of my favourites. Well, it's a wonderful line. I liked quickly says at one point, I beseech you be not so phlegmatic full of phlegm really good i I just it's it's got such a lovely round sound to it the word i love it uh falstaff also calls forward a mechanical salt butter rogue which (laughs) uh it's you know we haven't talked a lot about shakespearean insults in here and i think shakespearean insults are sometimes a little overdone in terms when people talk about them but this was a, a great example I also really liked a letter sent by Falstaff to Mistress Ford, is one of the letters we're talking about before. And it is finished with what is quickly becoming one of my favourite things in Shakespeare, which is uh, Shakespeare purposely writing bad poetry for his idiot characters to speak. And he, he signs off with, Thine own true knight, by day or night, or any kind of light. With all his might for thee to fight, and and she's reading this out loud, and you see her face drop as she's delivering this line. There's a moment where she actually groans and rolls her eyes to the audience about halfway through when she realizes that it all rhymes. Yes, she's just like, oh please. It's wonderful. It's just, it's the best kind of first grade poetry. I mm. love it. And in terms of actual like good writing from this play. There are two monologues that Ford has after each of his meetings with Falstaff when he's in the wigs. And both of those monologues, I think, are really, really good. There's some strength to them. There's a good, there's good arc in them. I, I would suggest anyone who's sort of interested in monologues, go look those up. They're really good options, I think. So, Luke, would you watch this again? I have to say, I think that this is a play that should get done more. I think it should get done by little amateur theatrical groups because it's funny mm. and I think it'd slay. It, it's, it's also free because it's Shakespeare. Wink, mm-hmm. wink, guys. And, you know, a warm summer night out by a lake somewhere, little local amateur troupe, I think they'd kill with it. Yeah. And I'd love to watch it in that context. I, I, I just think it's the kind of play that is going to be a real crowd pleaser anywhere good pantomimes are sold yeah what about yourself well i did yeah you did you have already watched (laughs) it twice i have already watched it twice but i will probably add this particular adaptation to my list of feel-good watches so like when i'm having a a downer day and i need to just pet myself up with an easy watch i'll probably pop this dvd in and watch it again um, but I agree with you about the idea that amateur theatre companies looking for a good, fun, rollicking play that they can sell tickets to and, you know, have a fun time performing and have their audiences really enjoy it. I, I think this is an excellent contender for putting into any program for that purpose. Absolutely. How many spears would you shake at this play? Four. Four? Yeah. Look, I can't say enough how much I enjoyed watching this show. I really can't. I want to make it very clear that um, the spear rating system is completely nonsensical, but in my (laughs) mind, my ratings have a sort of internal consistency to them, and they are based on a number of criteria. And so I'm going to say that I'm giving this two and three-quarter spears. But, (laughs) but... 
to get two and three quarter spears out of a play that is admittedly got it has weaker writing it has weaker weaker characters that's basically like a four that's like a four for this play so there you go And now for a sonnet that is not Sonnet 18. Sonnet 135. Whoever hath her wish, thou hast thy will, and will to boot, and will an overplus. More than enough am I, that vex thee still, to thy sweet will making addition thus. Wilt thou, whose will is large and spacious, not once vouchsafe to hide my will in thine? Shall will in others seem right gracious? And in my will, no fair acceptance shine. The sea, all water, yet receives rain still, and in abundance adds to his store. So thou, being rich in will, add to thy will, one will of mine, to make thy large will more. Let no unkind, no fair beseechers kill. Think all but one, and me in that one, will. heavenly shows and unnecessary letters you can follow us on the socials using hsaul podcast where we will also make our show notes available feel free to send us any questions there or send us an email at hsaulpodcast at gmail.com you can subscribe to heavenly shows and unnecessary letters on itunes spotify or anywhere good podcasts are available Next time, we'll be watching the 2009 St. Louis Shakespeare production of Edward III. This podcast is produced in partnership with That's Not Canon Productions, and the music is by me, with editing by both Tammy and myself. Thanks to William Shakespeare, Zane, Daryl, Scott, Janet, Bernadette, David, Emily, Kate, Peter and Jason for your help and music. a great role for two old women for two like sort of 50, women in their 50s yeah actors in their 50s just that's like, not old by the way thanks very much <laughs> my instinct is to make a no joke about you being very old right now but i'm not mm. going to <laughs> okay i'll start again